Hey, like Daniel said, my name's Ben. I'm here to teach this morning. So I got, I got a question to open up with. Have you ever thought why we ask you to greet one another? Like that's what we just did when he told you to greet somebody. Daniel actually encouraged you to greet someone you've never met before. But we, we take this time intentionally most Sundays uh, because we think it's important, biblically important, for us to get to know each other, for us to develop friendships, and for us to do what I'm preaching on today, fellowship. So if you've been around the summer, you know that we've been talking about spiritual disciplines. That's our sermon series for the summer. And today I'm teaching on the spiritual discipline of fellowship, which is Christian community. So why teach on fellowship, you might be asking. Like, I don't want to hang out with friends. Like, that's not hard. And, you know, you got a point there. Our, we do naturally enjoy fellowshipping with others. We do naturally enjoy hanging out with friends. But I'd like to submit to you this idea that fellowship is more than just hanging out with your friends. In fact, I've got a few more reasons why I want to teach on fellowship. So, one, I think Christian fellowship, it's misunderstood. I think that we don't uh, have a clear idea of what it looks like. And I want to, I want to help us to understand what, what it should look like. Next is that fellowship, it, it helps us with our spiritual disciplines. This is actually a great uh, sermon to be talking about near the end of our, our uh, sermon series on, on spiritual disciplines because fellowship actually helps amplify a lot of our spiritual disciplines, and I'll show that a bit later. And, and third is that it, it takes serious discipline and commitment to have good fellowship. If any of you have had long-term friendships, you, would, you know this, that it takes discipline and commitment to have long-term friendships. And lastly, it's, a, it's, it's often neglected as a discipline. You know, there are many people in many churches across America, and the world for that matter, that neglect the discipline of fellowship. So with all that being said, I'm going to pray and I'm, I'm going to get into this. God, I'm just so thankful for this opportunity to come and preach your word today. I ask that you would open our hearts so that we would be ready and willing to hear what it is you have to say, that we would uh, hear and understand your word. Father, I'm grateful uh, for the gathered believers here, for the fellowship that we have with one another. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So, if you know me, uh, I like to define things before I get into them. I, I really like to give us a clear idea of what it is that we're working with. And like I said at the top, I think that Christian fellowship is misunderstood. And if I think that, I think one of the best ways to help understand it is to give a, a good definition. So, let's ask ourselves, you know, what is it? And with whom are we fellowshipping? What, what is fellowship look like, and, and how do we practice it? Let's, let's see if we can answer these questions. Anytime you have questions like this on anything uh, Christian-related, there is one place that is way better to go to than anywhere else, and that's the Bible. Let's go there. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, I think has a great picture that's going to help us answer these questions. So just a, a bit of background before we read this. Uh, Acts chapter 2, where we are right now, comes right after Pentecost. Peter has just preached this great sermon. Many people have believed the things that Peter said. Peter is uh, pointing to the Old Testament, showing that the Messiah was predicted and that the Messiah was fulfilled in the man Jesus Christ. And that if you believe in him, in his death and resurrection, that you can share in his resurrection, in his eternal life, and be reunited with God. That's Peter's sermon. That's what people are believing. And now we're seeing the early church form here in Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. So those who accepted his, that is Peter's message, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So here we have, we have a picture of, of what the early church looks like, of what this idea of fellowship should look like. So, so what's happening here? So, so let's define these things, let's answer these questions. So what is it? So here we see these are people who've accepted Peter's message. These are people who've accepted the message of Christ. They're, they're Christians, a group of believers. They're practicing their faith together. We see them together. They're gathering together. They're, they're committed to the 
apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Uh, so who are we fellowshipping with? Christians. It's pretty clear that these are a group of fellow believers. What does it look like? Like I said, a community committed to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer. And what does it do? So here we see in verses 43 to the 47, just this idea, these actions that the early church is taking, and they're doing things like they're, they're caring and serving one another. Um, they, they held all things in common, and anybody had need, they'd, they'd give to that person. Uh, they, they're consistently gathering to hear uh, teaching, and, and they're sharing meals with each other, they're worshiping God together, and, and they're evangelizing, bringing more people into the fold, telling them the good news of Jesus. So that's, this, is, this is a good picture of what fellowship looks like. Now, I, I also pointed out uh, earlier that, that spiritual disciplines, our spiritual disciplines are often amplified or, or can't be done without fellowship. And so we've had 10 different spiritual disciplines we've taught on this summer. I think they're up here. We've got Bible study, service, worship, prayer, silence and solitude, fasting, sacrifice, evangelism, confession, and celebration. And if you pay attention today, you'll probably notice a lot of these in the scriptures that I'm reading. And if you just think through this list, you'll think, oh yeah, kind of hard to confess if I don't have someone to confess to. And I really like worshiping with other people. And Bible study tends to do better with other people. And so you get to see that, yeah, fellowship kind of amplifies the, these spiritual disciplines. And without the fellowship, you're in a harder place to do these things. So at this point, we've, we've kind of defined it. We've got this idea, oh, look, there's spiritual disciplines in here. This is, this is an important thing, fellowship. It's important. It's good. Uh, I like what I'm seeing in Acts chapter 2. I want, I want to see that in my own life. So the question then becomes, what is our responsibility here? What's, what's our responsibility? What's our personal responsibility to really get this idea of fellowship, to get this vision that we see in Acts chapter 2 to become a reality? Where a church that consistently gathers, they're, they're caring for each other, loving one another, serving, and, and evangelizing and worshiping and, and studying God's word. So how do we make that a reality? What are the things that we need to do? And I think there are so many passages in the Bible that could, that could talk on this, and I would love to go through them all, uh, but I've been told I can't preach for three hours. So instead, I'm just going to pick one, and we'll do that instead. So I'm going to go through Romans 12. We're going to read the whole chapter, and we're going to break it down after I read the whole thing. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing, and then we'll circle back, and we'll break it down piece by piece. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect the will of God. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching in teaching, if exhorting in exhortation, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, instead associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to what you do, what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves, instead leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. 
Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Here we see Paul in Romans chapter 12, he's giving instruction to the believers on, on how we should live. And if we follow these instructions, if we, if we see what he's teaching us, then we are going to see the fellowship that we should be practicing comes a lot easier. It, it, it's going to look a lot more like we saw in Acts chapter 2, like we see in the whole book of Acts. So let's, let's take this piece by piece. Let's look at each sort of command or responsibility that we've been given. So I'm going to go just, just thought by thought here. We're going to read each, uh, each passage and then just talk about it a little bit. Let's start at the top, verse 1. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So, so here, Paul is asking us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. So what does this mean? This means that who we are, all that we are, all that we do, should be for God's sake. And this is at the top of the list for a reason, because it's a prerequisite to faithfully fulfilling the remaining commands in the passage. If you want to faithfully fulfill these commands in the rest of the passage, you have to present your body as a living sacrifice to God. And, and really, just, that's to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to, to let go of, of what it is that you want to do with your life and, and give God control of that. It's what Christ expects from us. He said so in Luke 9, 23. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. That, that we have to take up the cross, take up this instrument of punishment and death daily and follow him. That we would deny ourselves, our own desires, these things that twist and rage inside of us, and instead follow after Christ. This is what he expected from us. But, but why is this what is expected? Why is this what it takes to be a Christian? Well, if you keep reading, Jesus gives you the answer. In the next two verses, he says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Some translations say lose or forfeit their very soul. When we try and build our lives the way that we see fit, when we try and take control, we, when we want to be the people who, who guide our own lives and make all of the decisions, it leads to destruction. When we're the people, we want to save our lives, these lives here on earth. We want to build for ourselves everything here on earth. That stuff's nice for now, but what good does it profit you in the eyes of eternity? It says, you know, what good does it profit someone if they gain the whole world, everything in it? but lose their self, what good is it if you have everything in this life but are separated from God for eternity in the next? And the, the reason that this is at the top is because this focus, this, this shift in focus is what allows us to do these other things. Understanding that when we look at this world, when we look at the desires that we have, that so often we are, we are destructive in our very nature. And that without giving over ourselves to God, that no matter what we do here, in the eyes of eternity, it has no point. And I want to encourage you here because when God wants all of you, it's, it's not to turn you into something terrible. It's not going to take away everything from you. you know, God loves you. Jesus says that his his yoke is easy and his burden is light. God wants you to be who you were made to be. He wants you to be who you, you really are. But our own sinful desires, our own flesh, they, they warp us and, and, and keep us from becoming these things. I mean, we all know this in some degree. We've all felt this, this understanding and knowledge that we see this, this person who we could be, and we want that, and on our own, there's no way of getting there. You know, we run through every, every action we've made in our past. We see just how so many of our mistakes have led us from this perfect course and how we could be here, but, but man, these thousand, these million, these hundred billion mistakes we've made on the way have kept us from being to this place we want to be. God wants us to take us to this place. God wants us to, to relinquish control of our lives and so he can care for us, so he can build us up 
into the perfect people that we are meant to be. So having that focus, having that shift in focus and understanding, that is what, what we need. And that's, that's the reason that Paul gives this next command in verse 2, where he says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Here he's telling us, don't conform to the culture, don't conform to the world around you, so that you can know the will of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to those who are being saved. What the world believes is, is almost always contradictory to what is true, to what it is that God wants for us. And this is why it is so important that you don't conform to the present culture, because if you do, you will eventually find yourself opposed to God. Now, some cultures, they might come closer in line with what it is that God wants for us, and some cultures farther. But every worldly culture, every worldly age, at some point or another, will be in opposition to God. Because if they reject him, they're going to reject his teaching and what is true. This is why we have to present ourselves, our whole selves, as sacrifices to God and allow him to transform us so we can understand his will, so we can understand what it is that is good, not only in his sight, but good for us, good for the world. I mean, the things that we're about to read in this next part of this passage, I don't think anyone would really disagree that they're good. And we can see just how wonderful the benefits of living this way would be. But doing that on our own is, frankly, impossible. That's why we have to allow him to transform us so that we can do these things and have this fellowship that God wants for us. I'll talk more on this later, but conforming to the world, it, it's one of the worst things that you can do those with whom you fellowship. It, just poison to those in your fellowship. Like I said, I'll talk more on that later. Let's move on to the next verse. In verse 3 it says, For by the grace given to me I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think, Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. So here he just says, be humble and just appreciate, you know, appreciating our actual abilities. Here it's simple. Don't think more of yourself than you actually are. But do understand and appreciate you know, your own abilities and, and what it is within your abilities. He's not saying think absolutely nothing of yourself. He's saying be sensible. Understand who you are. Understand what it is that you can do. Oftentimes, we always want to build ourselves up to be more than who we actually are. That's why we need to be transformed so we can come and receive the humility. And this connects to the next passage, this next thought here, verses 4 through 8. They say, Now as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching and teaching, if exhorting, that's encouraging. I don't, we don't use the word exhort as often in, a, in today's uh, vernacular. Uh, if exhorting or encouraging, in exhortation or encouragement, giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. So here just Paul wants us to know and, and to use the gifts that we've been given. So each of us has different abilities and, and different gifts. Paul lists a few important gifts here. He lists them as prophecy, service, teaching, ex exhorting, uh, giving, leadership, and, and mercy. So if you have these gifts, first, you know, figure out that you know that you have them. Next, use them. And lastly, use them to the extent that you have them. You know, not all of us have the same extent and ability in each of our gifts as others. And back to that previous command, be humble and honest about the extent of your abilities and apply that to your giftings. You might have a gift, but you might not be as talented in that gift as someone else. And that's okay, because we should appreciate that the fellowship should be made up of a diverse set of gifts and talents, and like a body, not all the parts are the same. We're not all the same. We are different, unique. And the beauty of that is that we should all come together in our individuality and uniqueness and work together as the church forms one body, as the, the body is brought together by many different organs and cells and systems. So the next thought that, that Paul gives us is 
Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil, cling to what is good. Here, it, it, it's, what he's saying is simple. Don't be a hypocrite. But here, hypocrisy specifically is relating to sin. Saying, let love be without hypocrisy. So as you love and care for one another, as you claim to do what it is that God wants you to do, claim to do what it is God says is right, don't do the things that God says are wrong or encourage others to do it or allow it and others to do it in our fellowship. And to be honest, we're all going to fall short of perfection and to some degree be hypocrites at one point or another. And that's a great time to practice the discipline of confession. But here, this hypocrisy that he's talking about, it's not just individual acts of sin, individual acts of hypocrisy, but it's, it's a lifestyle of continued, unrepentant, and often hidden sin. The hypocrites who, oh, we, it's been it's probably years since this happened now. I don't know if any of you remember the Ashley Madison scandal. Ashley Madison was a website where people would have fair affairs. Um, they could find other people willing to have affairs. And the client list got leaked online, and we found out that, I don't know, hundreds, I have not looked at the numbers in a while, hundreds of pastors' names were on there. That's hypocrisy. Someone who says, you know, love your wife and care for her and have only one wife and don't cheat on her, and then goes and lives a consistent, hidden, sinful, unrepentant life of adultery. That's what, that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. So next, Paul talks about loving one another. He says in verse 10, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Love and honor other Christians. This one seems very straightforward, and and it is in, in theory, but in practice, it becomes a little bit more difficult. We should be kind and caring to our fellow Christians. I mean, Galatians 6.2 says that we should carry one another's burdens, and in this way, we'll fulfill the law of Christ. We should also take the lead in honoring each other. And this is done best by having respect for each other. What it means to take the lead in honoring one another it means we're not belittling each other, we're not putting each other down, we're not talking behind each other's backs, but instead we're building each other up. Like it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. Like I said, this is, this is straightforward in, in theory. We all want to be loved and we all want to be honored. But it's very easy, especially when we don't get along with everyone, for us to gossip, for us to put others down. I mean, we're, we're insecure people. A lot of the times, the way that we feel better about ourselves is by putting others down. And here, what, what Paul is encouraging us to do is to not only just care for each other and meet each other's needs, loving one another, but also to respect each other, to take the lead in respecting each other. That our default isn't neutral, it's not negative. No, our, our default is to be positive about one another. That when we talk about each other, we're building each other up. Like, man, my friend Dustin, he's so great. What a great friend. A loyal, awesome dude. We were just hanging out last night. It was a great, great time. But like, that, that's the way we should talk about each other. We should take the lead in honoring one another, loving each other. Man, if this, if, if this one command we took just super seriously, oh, everybody would want to be a part of our fellowship. Next commandment, that, that, or responsibility that Paul gives us in verse 11, says, do not lack diligence and zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. So zeal, or being zealous, just means really passion, particularly related to religion or faith. Uh, if you're a zealous person, that means you really are passionate about your faith. Um, so here, Paul's encouraging us to be zealous in your faith, serving the Lord. So take serving God seriously. Reading his word, doing what he commands, being in prayer with him, building one another up. And Christ gave us these two commands. He said these are above all else. And these, in fact, all the law is uh, compiled. That we would love God with our whole being and that we love our neighbor as ourself. When we, if we want to be zealous in our faith for, for God, this is what we need to do. Love and honor him and then love and respect each other. Next, uh, Paul encourages us, saying, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Here he's just saying, celebrate the good, endure the bad, and, and pray continually. But with 
We need to be thankful and appreciative, appreciative in good times, practicing the discipline of celebration, but endure the hard times, knowing that God has a great reward waiting for those who follow him, and in all times, be praying. And when it's good, be praying, praising God, thankful, appreciative that, that he has blessed us so much, and in hard times, asking God to give us the strength to endure those hard times, thanking God that we've, we've had good times, thanking God that we have uh, this great reward to look forward to, thanking God that we have this wonderful fellowship of believers to encourage us in the hard times, constantly praying. And we should do this with others in our good times and bad times and encourage them to do the same. When you're having good times, you should be celebrating with others, enjoying that, taking time to pray together, thanking God, and in hard times coming alongside others, asking them for help and encouragement, and, and encouraging them to do the same. And when they're having good times, yeah, come to me, let's celebrate. Let's, this is amazing. You've got a great job. I'm thankful for that. And in hard times, you know, your parents have passed away. Man, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm here for you. I want to care for you. you know, this, is, this is how it should look, that we would be celebrating good and comforting and bad. And at all times, be praying. So, the next uh, responsibility Paul gives us in verse 13, he says, share with the saints and their needs, pursue hospitality. Here he's just telling us to be hospitable to others and give to Christians in need. And it uh, wouldn't be a sermon for me if I didn't get into the Greek at least once, so I've got to take a quick detour here on the word saints. Uh, saints, it's, the words kind of become confused in meaning because what it means in Scripture is actually a little bit different than what most people mean when, when they use the word saint. Uh, so the word saint, it's, like I said, it's got a bit of confused meaning, but when, when you see it in the Bible, it's always used to mean that just the general body of Christians. It's, it's not a particularly faithful Christian. It's not this person whose faith is above other people. Um, in fact, the original word in the Greek, hagion, uh, I think I have up there, just simply means holy. That's, that's what it means in Greek. And where we actually get the word saint, the word saint is actually derived from the Latin version of the word holy, hagion, Greek hagion which is sanctus, which we get the word saint from. So when you see saint uh, in the Bible, it just means Christians. It's just another word for Christians. Might, you know, we use the words believers, followers of Christ, Christians, uh, brothers and sisters, and we see all these different words in Scripture. That's what it means. Um, yeah, and then in this passage, it means that. Uh, the word hegeon, uh, it, it, like I said, it means holy. It can be used as an adjective. Uh, or a noun, if it's an adjective, it's typically translated holy. If it's a noun, it's typically translated saints. If we were to try and translate this a little more directly, using a less confusing word, we might say the holy ones. Yeah, just, just a little bit of a, a Greek for you. Like I said, I, I had to do it. Couldn't get away from the Greek. Anyway, back to the, back to the passage at hand. So here, like I said, it says, share with the saints and their needs, pursue hospitality. So here Paul's just encouraging us to give to other Christians in need doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for those outside the church, but that those in the church are a priority. Galatians 6.10 uh, says this. It has a very similar thought. Paul, again, writing this letter, he says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So we care about other people. We, we want to care and serve all people. And in fact, historically, uh, no group of people has done more in the way of charity taking care of the needy, the poor, the sick, the, the helpless, than Christians. Uh, but there's a priority in caring for those of the faith. And the reason for that is because, one, I mean, there are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love them, deeply connected to them, and we want to build them up, we want to be able to support them. And, and two is because, the, like Christ said, Christ said, the world hated me, so it's going to hate and persecute you. For no servant is greater than his master. And the world's going to be harsh to us, and so we should take care of each other in those hard times. I mean, the, here in the States, we have it pretty nice, but in many countries all around the world, that's not the case. We should be taking care of other members of the fellowship, giving to them in their need as, as, as they need, in whatever way that might be, whether that's money, whether that's time, whether that's medical support, giving to them in their need. Uh, James says that the Pure and undefiled religion for God the Father is this, visiting orphans and widows in their strife and keeping oneself unstained from the world. I mean, that's how we're supposed to live. It's how we glorify God. So next, Paul starts to get into some more difficult things. Not that these things have necessarily been easy. But he says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Here he's just simply telling us to bless our persecutors, which is a, a tough command. I mean, naturally, no one wants to bless the people who are persecuting them. But our greatest ambition as believers should be to see every person alive, every person in existence adopted into the family of God. And, and the best way to do this is to keep these bridges open. You know, as people persecute and, and, and treat us harshly, treat us unkindly, unjustly, that we should bless them and not curse them. That, as Paul says later, he says, you know, as far as it's up to you, we'll live at peace with everyone. That we should really try and practice that. And the reason being is so that we can continue to establish this, this relationship with them in, in some degree and hope and pray that they will come to know Christ at some point. I have a story about this I'll, I'll, I'll tell just a little bit later as we get into the last uh, section and, and just how this practice can play out. So the next responsibility Paul gives us in verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And here he's just telling us to fellowship with others the way that they need. Now you might know the uh, poem from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It says, uh, I'm going to paraphrase this here and cut to the parts that apply to this. It says, to everything there's a season. Skipping down, it says there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. We should appreciate that, that people have different needs at different times and be able to meet those. When someone's mourning, don't come in and throw a grand party. When someone's celebrating, don't come in and sour the mood, just to sour the mood. And Sometimes we, we may be celebrating great things. Sometimes we may be mourning terrible things, but we should be willing and able to do both with our brothers and sisters and, and ask them to do the same with you. Again, like we're asking people to, to celebrate with us and people to mourn with us. Same is, same is true here. And we should be able to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So the former command was Paul to, uh, telling us to do that in our personal life. This is his now responsibility to tell us to do it with others. <coughs> The next responsibility that Paul gives us in verse 16, he says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So here Paul's encouraging us to live in harmony and associate with the humble, that we would be humble and associate ourselves with the humble. So we should pursue harmony with one another. I mean, this is ideal, right? We'd all like to get along with each other. But if you've been alive for more than, I don't know, a year, you probably know that people will get on your nerves at some point and... Pursuing harmony is a discipline. It's not something that just happens. It takes effort. It takes forgiveness. It takes grace. It takes the benefit of the doubt. It takes humility. And when we associate ourselves with the humble, when we don't view ourselves as wise in our own estimation, it makes that a little bit easier. We don't let pride get in the way of harmony. And we should surround ourselves with people who are humble. And I think you'll have a much easier time living with harmony and others. If you have other people who are humble, encouraging you to be humble, because honestly, humility goes a very long way as, it, as far as it relates to living in harmony with other people. Because as James says, I love James, just keep quoting him, uh, where do your strifes and arguments come from? They come from your pride and the desires that rage inside of you. This, this is often why we get in tiffs or arguments or fights with other people because we see our way is better than theirs. And sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. But our next encouragement that we get from Paul, you know, did I skip 17 and 18? Huh. Maybe. I don't have that in my notes. That would be ridiculous. Yeah, I did. I uh, forgot to copy this, but this is all part of this. I'm going to read. Uh, it's all the same thought. I just forgot to include the first two verses in my notes and in the slide. So, Starting in verse 17, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Cool. I ended in the right place. Thanks for working with me there. So, mm. oh, that was throwing me off. So here, Paul is encouraging us to forgive and pursue peace. That we shouldn't take vengeance 
on ourselves. We shouldn't take it on ourselves to pursue vengeance. And instead, we should forgive our enemies. But also understand that vengeance belongs to God and that one day there will be a judgment on everyone. And all those who are not covered by the blood of Christ will be punished for every evil thing that they have done. This is a difficult thing to do. Again, like we said, we don't like blessing those who persecute us. It's a hard command. And it is one, like I said, that we do so that we might see other people saved. But we also understand that if they are not, if they don't come to have salvation, that vengeance does belong to the Lord and that he will seek judgment for every evil thing that every one of us have done. And that the, the just reward of that punishment, the wages of, or just reward of that sin, the just reward or our wages of our sin, of our own actions, is death, eternal death and separation from God. And it's not a pleasant thing. But the pleasant thing is that God offers grace and forgiveness to everyone, to anyone who wants to come to him. And that we should pursue that and that our greatest hope should be that everyone would accept that. This is why we don't avenge ourselves. We understand that God is in charge of that. And then lastly, here, uh, verse, verse 20 and 21, it says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Here, Paul encourages us to not just not curse our enemies, but to bless them, to love and care for them. And again, the purpose of serving our enemies, like I've said multiple times at this point, is so that they may later come to know Christ. And this is how we conquer evil with good. As people do evil to us, as the evil in the world tries to conquer us, that we would love, forgive, care for our enemies, and desire that they would come and, and, and get to know Christ. Like I said, I had a story on this. I want to share this now of, of what this can do. Listening to this uh, story from this missionary over in northern India uh, where he was in a, a small village really out of the way. I can't remember the name, um, and no one would know it if uh, I did remember it. And there he'd been for many years uh, just preaching the gospel, and one day he went out to do open-air preaching. He went out to this local uh, gathering area and just started preaching the gospel. And it, it was going all right for a little bit, and then a, a crowd of, uh, of individuals who were um, high on some kind of drugs got very upset with him and rushed him, grabbed him, began to beat him, and were dragging him towards this Hindu temple, and they were going to put, I forget what it's called, but it's the... The, the white dot on the forehead and make him kneel before this altar of this Hindu god. And, and they were going to record it. And then if he was lucky, they'd just beat him up and let him go. But as ha does happen often enough, they might have just killed him and left him to die or beat him so badly that he would have bled out and died in the streets. And as he was being drugged, the police weren't helping him. Nobody was helping him. Uh, fortunately, uh, some of the people who belonged to the church that he was in did come and, and help him, and he got away. But, but he remembered one person uh, from that group of people who were beating him, who were dragging him to, to this temple to make him kneel before a pagan god. And he knew the guy. I mean, it's in a small community. He, he knew where the guy lived. He talked with him. And so the next day, he got a bag of fruit, went to the guy's house, knocked on the door, and said, hey, I just want to give this to you, and I want you to know that, that I forgive you, and that I care about you, and that, that Jesus loves you, and that he wants you to have a relationship with him. And he said this man's mouth just dropped open, because he remembered who this guy was. I mean, he's one white guy in a town of Indians. It's pretty easy to know who that guy is. He remembered beating him up, and he just could not comprehend how this man, who he almost killed, came to him the very next day with a gift and forgave him. And because of that interaction, that man you know, fell and wept in tears and then gave his life over to Christ. This is, this is what can happen if we take this stuff seriously. We can add people to the fellowship we need to be able to encourage each other to do that. We need to be transformed by God because that's not something that we want. Our very nature wants us to go back and beat those people up. I mean, we're, that causes anger and, and, and wrath in us and takes God's grace and, and transforming spirit to not do that. So I, I had 14 different responsibilities that I felt Paul listed that we talked through. Uh, just in case you like taking notes or, or taking pictures of slides, uh, here's every command up here, all 14 of them. Uh, you, can, you can have those. That'll be up there for a little bit. And 
This, this is every command we walked through for our responsibility and fellowship. Uh, I mean, just looking at this, I think we can now kind of appreciate that, uh, yeah, fellowship is, is a discipline. I mean, <laughs> some of this stuff, uh, it's a bit easier than others, but a lot of it's hard. A lot of it takes discipline. A lot of it takes commitment and, and the transformation of our hearts and minds and spirits with God. And I think we can also appreciate that if we practice even half of these things, committed to them, that, that our lives would look a lot different, that our church would look a lot different, that the world around us would look a lot different. That, man, if we appreciated this and, and committed to this, talking about myself here as well, that, well, just the, how beautiful that would be, how blessed, blessed and wonderful that would be. So, like I said back at the beginning, one of the reasons I want to talk about fellowship, one of the reasons I felt fellowship is a, something worth teaching on, um, because it's a discipline that's been neglected by many Christians and in many churches. Because what may be the most important responsibility we have in the discipline of fellowship, which I don't have up here, is actually intentionally spending time in fellowship. I mean, how do we fellowship with people if we don't fellowship with people? How do we fellowship with people if we don't want to hang out with them, we, we never spend any time around them? And right now, it's actually really abundantly evident. We've got some great uh, statistics. I mean, they're not great. They make me sad, but they're very clear that, that people neglect fellowship, that people are neglecting fellowship, and that's thanks to the COVID pandemic. Uh, according to the Pew Research Center, only two-thirds of regular church attenders, these are people who came to church at least twice a month before COVID, only two-thirds of them have returned to, to in-person church services as of March of this year. Uh, the numbers are a bit better for evangelicals, with about three-fourths of regular church attendees having returned to the, as of March. But we've hit a plateau, and maybe we'll see in a couple more years what the numbers look like, but at this point, it looks like everyone who wants to come back has come back. I'm going to get maybe just a little bit controversial here. I hope this isn't controversial, but I know people who think it is. If you're a Christian, you should be a part of the church. Does that track? Does that follow? Does it seem fair? I want to. I don't like just putting those things out on my own. I like to back that stuff up with the Bible. So I'll read here from Hebrews chapter ten, verses twenty-three through twenty-five. It says, "Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other." and all the more as you see the day approaching. Christianity is a team sport. If you want a healthy relationship with God, then you should be in fellowship with other Christians. We should be gathering as Christians, and like it says here in Hebrews 10, encouraging one another to love and good works, and building each other up. And you may say, and I've heard people say this, and I know people who will continue to say this, but I don't need to be a part of the church to be a Christian. And you would be correct. I mean, that's, that's a fair statement. That's an accurate statement. You don't need to be a part of the church to be a Christian. But I would also counter by saying that you don't need your arms and legs to live. That may seem a little funny over the top, but I'm, I'm being serious. That's a, how I feel about this, and I think that's a pretty accurate and apt uh, analogy. I, I don't know many people who are willing to live without their arms and legs. Now, I, I do want to be clear here and say that just because you're attending a Sunday church service regularly doesn't mean that you're having fellowship. I'm certain that there are people who attend church every Sunday and have done so for a long time, but also continually neglect Christian fellowship. I know this because, I mean, I've been going to church for a while and I know these people. So please, please, please listen to me on this. Please take this seriously. As a church that continually sends people out every year as people graduate, we see this. That you need to surround yourself with fellow believers. And honestly, here in the U.S., that's going to look like being a part of a church. More than likely. Might not always look like that. But as long as you are practicing Christian fellowship, like I talked about, as long as you're gathering with other believers, awesome. 
Now, I know a good amount of people who've neglected to connect with other Christians and practice the discipline of fellowship, and as a result, they've walked away from their faith. And, and uh, it, it just, it's all too common. And we saw all these things. Like, don't we want a fellowship like that? And yeah, I know, I know that the church doesn't look like that most of the time. But we should be, if you read the book of Acts, you will often get sad because you will see what the church looks like in the first century, and it doesn't look like that now. But I think that we should be inspired by that because that, when we read the book of Acts, not inspired by the church not looking like person. Don't be inspired by that. We should be inspired when we read the book of Acts because that means that the church can look like that, that we can have a church that is faithfully meeting together, that they're, they're, the fellowship is strong, they're loving each other, serving each other, caring for one another, forgiving their enemies, that they're adding to the people being saved, they're preaching the gospel, they're seeing just wonderful things happening. We can see that. I mean, if it happened then, it can happen now. I want to encourage you, I want you to be serious about this. As you graduate, as you go different places, you take this idea of fellowship seriously. And maybe it doesn't mean that you end up at a Sunday church service or part of a traditional church, but if you are gathering with Christians continually, consistently, doing the things we see in Acts, being taking on the responsibilities we see as I talk to in Romans 12, fantastic. Seriously, please, listen to me. Do not, do not neglect fellowship. And I have another um, discipline or responsibilities I want to throw on there. So additional responsibility I threw on there was actually intentionally meet with other people and a fellowship if you don't meet with other people. The next one is also a bit controversial, and that is another area that I felt has been neglected by many churches to their great detriment, and that's the responsibility of safeguarding the fellowship through church discipline and avoiding false teachers and divisive people. Not a pleasant topic, not an easy topic, and I can't believe that I've tacked this on to a sermon that I've already gone on, uh, because this is a sermon in and of itself. I'm not going to go too long, I promise. But I, I, I know a lot of people in my personal life and who I've interacted with on the internet who really just despise the idea of church discipline, because it, it's harsh that we would want to avoid certain people, that we would want to remove certain people from the fellowship. That is not pleasant. I don't think anyone thinks it's pleasant. But, like I said before, I don't want to just put this out on my own. I want to back this up with Scripture, and I'm really going to do that. Uh, I'm just going to do a quick survey of different Scriptures on church discipline. So we get an idea of what it looks like, but just also understand that, you know, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere, that this is a consistent and important theme uh, in the New Testament. So I want to start here with Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. This is Jesus talking. He says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that you, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Here Jesus is talking to Jews, Gentiles and tax collectors they didn't like to associate with. They uh, were people who were excluded from the fellowship of the Hebrews. Next is Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Here, Paul is writing this. He says, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, and disputes about the law, because they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject the divisive person after a first and second warning. For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. So here we see someone who's bringing this, this false teaching here in, in uh, the community that he's writing to, that Titus is living in. Paul is talking about the, these false teachers who are really getting caught up in uh, genealogies and, and disputes about the law that are just, as Paul puts it, unprofitable and worthless. And he says that you should reject these divisive people, these false teachers who are dividing the church over bad theology, but after a first and second warning, pretty similar to what Jesus had uh, in Matthew 18. Next passage is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse, verse 6, and then verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says, Now we command you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from every brother or sister who is idle 
and does not live according to the tradition received from us. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person, don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So real quick in verse 14, it, uh, Paul says, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, I want, I want to explain what that instruction is. I'm just going to give you a real high level view of what the book of, or the letter of 2 Thessalonians is all about. So the message of 2 Thessalonians is that we should endure hardship, looking forward to Christ's return, which will bring final judgment on evil, and those who do not choose Christ will be separated from him for eternity. And that this coming day, it's not to be predicted by us, because the day of Christ's return will be evident to all. There were many false teachers trying to predict the end times of Christ, saying, oh, he's already come back, we've missed it, Jesus has abandoned us. That's not the case. When he comes back, we will all know it. And that we should take comfort in the return of Christ and not be afraid. It also includes instruction not to be idle, but to be responsible and work to provide for yourself and others. This is, this is the message here. And Paul's saying, if you, they're teaching something contrary to this message, reject them. Don't associate with them so that they may be ashamed. But this is meant to discipline them, but that we, we don't consider them enemies, but we're warning them as a brother. The next is Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Here Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them, because such people do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites. They deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting with smooth talk and flattering words. So here Paul is encouraging us to avoid these false teachers because they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They are going to lead people astray, so we should avoid these false teachers. Next, Galatians chapter 1, verse 9 says, As we have said before, so Paul has already been dealing with this. He said this before, as you know, since I've read several of these passages already. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, a curse be on him. People who are giving false teaching, they're not to be welcomed into the fellowship. Paul even goes as far as to say a curse be on them. Next, in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, Paul says, for there are many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. These are people, they're, they're Jews who have become Christians, but they think that we should live under the, the old Hebrew law. Actually, these people still exist today. They're called the Hebrew Roots Movement. Uh, don't know why they're practicing a first century heresy, but you know, that happens sometimes. Anyway, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Cretans are people from Crete. And this is a, this is a in case you didn't catch that. Uh, this testimony is true. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. Here, the False teachers giving false teaching. Paul says we shouldn't associate them, but it's in fact necessary to silence them because they're leading people astray. And that in verse 13, he says that they rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. We want them to come to a better understanding of faith, but that involves rebuking them. And then the last verse here, the last passage here, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, and then verse 20. So as I, this is Paul talking, urged you, it's Timothy who he's writing to, when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that, you may be, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. Then he goes on and talks about these people a bit more and then lists who they are and what he's done with them. So among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So delivered Satan, that's a, like a bold phrase. It uh, doesn't mean that he's like, sent them to hell to be punished. Satan doesn't punish people in hell. But simply, it means that he's re he has removed them from the fellowship and, and pushed them out into the world. Satan is the Lord of the earth. That's what the Bible says. And when this phrase, delivered to Satan, is used, it means that they've been removed from the fellowship of believers. It's a, like I said, it's a, it's a pretty bold phrase, but that's just all that it means. Um, so, a lot of verses. Let, let's, let's hit some key takeaways here on this discipline of protecting the fellowship. So one, I mean, it's important. Like it's, it's strongly emphasized. We see multiple scriptures here. This isn't all of them. These are just ones that I found most particularly uh, useful, particularly uh, applicable. So there's several passages that reference it. It's important, and it's also important because it's 
people's eternal destinations depend on practicing this. There's a practice for removing people from the fellowship. So Jesus lays out this process for addressing someone who has sinned against you. He says, you confront them, and if they repent, cool, you're done. If not, you bring one or two people with you. If that doesn't work, you, you bring them before the church, announce what they've done, and if they don't repent in front of the church, then, then they're removed from the fellowship. They're not to be a part of the fellowship anymore. They're not the people who we're going to uh, prioritize giving to. They're not the people we're going to spend all of our time with because they're hurting someone. I mean, they're sinning against someone. The third is that it's done under specific circumstances. So to remove those in unrepentant sin, it's one circumstance like Jesus was talking about. If someone's hurting you, they're sinning against you, that's not good for the fellowship if you've got someone who's hurting someone else. And then the other is those who teach false doctrines, which is also hurting someone else, but in a, a, a uh, more substantial and eternal way by leading people astray from the gospel. So these are the circumstances that we see in Scripture. Someone who's in unrepentant sin, they're, they're hurting someone else, or someone who's teaching false doctrine. Um, these are the people who, who are removed. It's not just someone you don't like, someone you disagree with, someone whose teeth don't look nice, you know, whatever it might be. We don't just remove people willy-nilly, but there's a, there's a process for it, and there's only specific circumstances where it's done. And lastly, it's good for the fellowship, and it's good for the one being disciplined. So it's good for the fellowship. I mean, it prevents pain, it prevents division, it prevents people from believing false doctrines and being led astray. And it's also good for the one being disciplined because it's to encourage them to repent. They might come to a saving faith in, in Christ and they might not hurt others. But this is what we, you know, what we can take away. So I want to look at one major passage here. Let's explore it together with these key takeaways so we can see you know, what else there is uh, and, and, and kind of figure out like, how, how we can apply this with a, a more lengthy passage where we see this put into practice. So it's in 1 Corinthians 5. So I'm going to read uh, just section by section. We're going to kind of break it down in each section. So 1 Corinthians 5, the first section here, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom, and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation, the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan. Again, hand over to Satan. I explained that earlier. Remove him from the fellowship for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So here we've got a guy. He's in unrepentant sin. He's, he's hurting someone with his sin. Uh, his dad. He's sleeping with his stepmom. And, and the key word here is sleeping. He didn't just sleep with her once or a few times. No, he's doing it. It's clear it's an unrepentant sin. And it's an ongoing affair. And Paul says that they should remove this man from the fellowship. And he, sa- he says, I've already pronounced judgment on the guy. So Paul's like, I'm not here in person, but I'm a part of the, the body of Christ. And, and as someone who's heard about this, you don't need to go through. I, I've heard this. This guy, he needs to go. I've deemed him deserving of being removed from the fellowship. And the hope in removing him from the church is that, as it says in verse 5, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. They are removing him from the fellowship, hoping that he will repent and that he will not uh, be overcome by sin and, and suffer the eternal, eternal death. They want him to be saved in the day of the Lord. So then let's move on to the next section and see, see what's going on here. So starting in verse 6, it says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Indeed, you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul here, he's saying that the reason to remove this person, not only for his benefit, but uh, that his sin will affect the whole church like leaven, Yeast is an example of leaven. Affects the whole dough. You put yeast in a bit of dough, the whole dough rises up and fills with air bubbles. Uh, this man's sin may lead others into sin. I mean, if I were this guy's dad, I might want to put hands on him. He's sleeping with my wife. That would be upsetting. Or it might encourage others. If, the guy, if this guy's a leader, it might show that others are new people in the faith that, oh, this is a thing that's allowed. This is, what, this is how these Christians practice. 
especially in the era where Christianity is not fully, or it, it is formed, but not well known to many people. This man's sin may lead others into sin. It's going to cause division and harm, that's for sure. Uh, I think I would be upset if I found out that that was happening. And so here in the last section, um, we'll read through this and figure out what's going on. So starting in verse 9, it says, I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. What business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. So here Paul is emphasizing that when it comes to not associating with the chronically immoral, he means those who, who are within the fellowship, those who claim to be Christians and not just general people of the world. He says, he says that our duty is to remove the evil people from among us, not judge those outside the church. That God, that's God's responsibility. We want to see them brought into the church. We want to see them have transforming life in Christ, but then we don't just judge everyone in, in, in the world. Now, I do want to offer a bit of hope here. Uh, church discipline is not uh, always permanent. It doesn't have to be. There is room for redemption. Like I said, the purpose of this is for the good of the church and the good of the one being disciplined. We see a few verses here. I'm going to read a few more verses on restoring someone back to the fellowship. A couple verses here. So, Starting James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, it says, My brothers and sisters, any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save this soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So here we see in James that it's possible and encouraged to try and win people back from going astray. If you remove someone or if someone leaves, we want to win them back. You know, we don't want to separate them forever. No, like I said, our greatest ambition should be for all people to come to know the Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 11, we actually get to see a little bit of follow-up on that 1 Corinthians issue in 2 Corinthians. Uh, so the first letter to the Corinthians, it's really harsh. The second one's not that much less harsh, but it's because there's a lot of sin that's going on and Paul wants to address it. And Paul gets harsh, and as we see in 2 Corinthians, he, he hurts some people with his first letter. So I'm going to read this. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, but you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. For consider how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you. What a desire to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. In every way you have showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So Paul says that the purpose of his rebuke you read 1 Corinthians, he gets harsh at times. Uh, rightly so. A lot of bad stuff is happening in the church of Corinth. And that upsets some people. And good rebuke will likely be upsetting. But the reason for that is to produce repentance and a return to the fellowship. Like I said, the responsibility of protecting the fellowship, it involves sometimes avoiding people, sometimes removing people. That doesn't have to be permanent. Like I said, we want everyone to come to know Christ. We want everyone to be a part of the fellowship. I want to end by asking you again to please take fellowship seriously. Make it a priority your whole life to pursue the fellowship with other believers and devote yourselves to the fellowship like the first century church did in Acts and, and guard the fellowship from those who would, who would hurt it. This is, I think we can appreciate, a, a, a tough and serious discipline to fellowship with others, but Oh, the beauty when we do it right. I really encourage you to read the book of Acts after this. To read it and to see what the church does there. To see the, the wonderful, beautiful Christian fellowship, the joy and care that believers have for each other in the first century church. And, and like I said, be inspired by that. To know that that can be a reality today. You would take these disciplines and these responsibilities seriously.
And if you're someone who's on the outside of this fellowship looking in, as I've said several times at this point, we want you to be a part of this. We want you to come in, know God, to be transformed and to see these wonderful things happen in your life and the lives of those around you. So if you, if you, you want that, there'll be people out as we lead our, our last, wor- last worship set. The worship band can come up now. There'll be people out, little uh, tags on that say, how can I pray for you? They want to pray for you. They want to help you come into a relationship with God. And even if you are in the relationship with God and you are a part of the fellowship and you, and you want to take this more seriously, you feel that you need to confess or repent or you are just excited about it and want to celebrate or you, you need comfort in, in, in these hard times, then go and pursue that prayer. I really just encourage you, you know, as you, as you go out, really, be serious about fellowship, but also just appreciate that it is a wonderful gift that God has given us. We are blessed to be able to share in Christian fellowship, and I hope that we will uh, appreciate it as a gift that it is.